We'll pray for the Spirit's guidance. Our Lord and our God, I just pray that you guide my lips today. I pray, O Lord, a special blessing from the Holy Spirit that I can contribute to the, mature, to the maturing of not only myself, but the people who hear this message. Give us ears to hear, Lord, hearts to obey, and the feet to desire to carry out what you would have us to do on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. James 1-2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is, double mind, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You may be seated. We have been looking at a portion of the life of Calvin. And again, this is not a comprehensive study of his whole life. That could be quite a long sermon series. But we've been looking at the difficult circumstances he and the other reformers walked through, what they were engaged in in their day. There were trials from within the church, within the reformers, difficulty, fighting, infighting. There are trials from outside, from the Roman Catholic Church, who was pretty much tyrannical with the state at that time, with the rulers. They killed nearly a thousand who opposed them, who would not comply with their dictates. There was strife with the political structures of the day. Various factions, various groups. At times, the political structures were a great blessing. At times, they were a great curse, depending what they thought of you. But we see in their Christian walk was struggles and trials and difficulties. Yet we read... that we should consider it, what, pure joy, all joy, depending which uh, interpretation you use. When we have trials, when we meet trials of various kinds. Do you think these reformers were joyous in these trials? They were rejoicing in their difficulties? I don't think so. However, they persisted. 
But as, as they were walking through these trials, it was difficult for them. But was God using these trials to advance his church? By having them hone their skills, change their personalities? Yeah, he was. And we're blessed by the efforts of these men through their writings, through their contributions to the church. Their persistence in seeking a deeper understanding of absolute truth, purer truth, and how it applies to us every day. When we ended last time, we saw that Calvin and his companion, Pharaoh, were booted out of Geneva. The three councils voted unanimously to kick him out. They said they were the problems for the city. Businessmen didn't like them. They're causing strife within Burns, the city that was kind of the oversight of the Reformation. They were having struggles saying Kelvin and Pharaoh were not following their liturgy. So they booted them. Many other reasons, political reasons. But this did not change the atmosphere in Geneva. Many different factions were living there, many different people. It was on the border. Swiss, Germany, France, Italy. Many different struggles, many different difficulties. Businessmen fighting over businesses. The strife kept on. It kind of reminded me when I read the history of Milwaukee, and they had the Irish and the German and the Polish. And at that time, everybody got an hour off for lunch. And many people worked in the factories because Milwaukee was an industrial community. So there are many taverns around these factories. And at lunch, they'd go there and have their lunches. But you did not go to an Italian tavern if you were a German or a Pole. You would leave, but usually you were carried out. There was that much friction between these groups, and that's what it seemed like Geneva was. There was turmoil among all the parties in Geneva, and it continued. Now, Calvin and Pharaoh believed they were the innocent victims of, uh, of these political councils. Remember, a couple sermons back, it was Pharaoh who convinced Calvin to stay, and Calvin felt that it was a calling from God that he remain in Geneva. But I just want to give you a kind of Calvin's heart when one of the one of his friends Varey, another one who was at Geneva he was nearly poisoned to death by the way by one of these factions 
when he told Calvin that, you know, he was working to get him reinstated at Geneva. Now, I want you to see if there's pure joy or complete joy in Calvin considering this. This is what he said. But it would be far preferable to perish for eternity than be tormented in that place. If you wish me well, Veray, do not mention the subject. You know, we don't see a lot of pure joy there for the trials Calvin went through. But he was still learning. He was a young believer yet. He wasn't mature. Brilliant, but not mature. So a council of the reform leaders met in Zurich. Among other things, they discussed the situation of Calvin and Farrell. And to the horror of Calvin and Farrell, they were not considered the victims. They were considered the problem by this council. They were the ones spreading the discord among the reformers was what they concluded. Now this was a great blow and a great humiliation to Calvin and to Farrell. But you know, this council did not discard these two men. One of them wrote, their zeal is perhaps too great, and yet they are pious and learned men. And in my opinion, they should be forgiven much. And those who did not care for Calvin had a different response. They said he was trying to start a new papacy in Geneva, a heavy-handed man, just like the Pope and the political powers were. But this did humble these men. It humbled Calvin where he would accept the recommendations of this council on what to do next. Now the scriptures tell us in the multitude of counselors there is great wisdom. Calvin was learning that. Calvin understood that he was a brilliant man. He was prideful, and at times he thought too much of himself. So Calvin went back and forth between Basel and Strasbourg. His confidence damaged. Remember, he felt his calling was in Geneva, and now he was unsure. He wrote his friend Tillett concerning Geneva, Above all, however, on looking back and considering the perplexities which surrounded me the first time I went there, there is nothing I dread more than returning to that charge from which I have been set free. For though when first I took it up, I could discern the calling of God which held me fast and by which I consoled myself. Now, on the contrary, I am in fear that I would tempt him if I were to resume so great a burden, which I have already felt to be insupportable. What he's saying there, at first when he tolerated staying in Geneva in, in all the strife, 
It was that he felt it was the calling of God that gave him the counsel and the perseverance to stay there. But now he was unsure. His critics were telling him he wasn't called there. It seemed like it was weighing on Calvin's heart as to where he was called. He was saying he doesn't think it's to be called back there. Was God working in him to make him perfect and complete through these trials? I believe God was, but he was using men. So God always does. He uses men in circumstances, sometimes godly men, sometimes ungodly men. So I tell you, anybody in this church who is a true believer, God is forming you now, either through godly men or ungodly men, and through the circumstances in your life. One of the men God would use was an experienced reformer at the height of his power named Martin Busser. He convinced Calvin and Farrell to separate that they weren't good for each other. They were bad influences on each other. So Farrell did go his way. And Calvin submitted himself to Busser's training in Strasbourg. And Calvin liked Strasbourg. As Calvin kept refining his institutes, he kept writing, writing his pamphlets, and there were many printing presses in Strasbourg, so his word could get out. And that's a big thing. Every time you see the church growing, it's because God's word is going forth, either through preaching or the written word, but it is always based on the word of God going forth. Calvary saw in Booster, who was a gifted man in bringing unity within the Reformers, he could bring unity, he could bring sides together to at least meet at the table. And Booster did tutor Calvin, also in the ability of how to lead a church in being more patient and more tolerant of people who weren't quite where he was at. You know, and that's part of all of us. We all think, whether it's in business, in our work, or whatever, we think that other people know what we know, or have experienced what we have experienced. They don't. Our walk is different. We can't sit there and study something for two months, bring it up to somebody, and if they don't have an answer and an opinion on it, jump on them for not answering or giving their side of it because they haven't even been studying it. But it's in our nature to think that other men and women know what we know. But it's wrong of us to ask for an opinion on something that they haven't had time to consider. And that was one of Calvin's biggest problems. But here under Booser. He was being trained. Again, he's continued with his writings, his commentaries. He expanded the institutes. And he was becoming known. He was becoming known as one of the leaders of the Reformation. Even though exiled from Geneva, 
he is becoming highly recognized as an author, a writer, and also a peacemaker going along with Busser, trying to bring unity among the reformers. His institutes were now being written like all good Christian men must do. We must not only think of our lives, but those who will carry on the work that is started, carried on by us, we must look at who will carry it on in the future so they have a better understanding of the trials and the difficulties. This is what Calvin said about his institutes. It has been my purpose in this labor to prepare and instruct candidates in sacred theology for the reading of the divine word in order that they may be able both to have easy access to it and to advance in it without stumbling. Again, what we have here is an imperfect man, but with a perfect vision for God's church. How to take dominion in the earth. Busser did not need Calvin in Strasbourg. But Booster saw something in this man, kind of like a diamond in the rough. And he was preparing him to what his true calling was, to go back to Geneva. He saw more in Kelvin than what Kelvin was seeing in himself. The situation in Geneva worsened when Kelvin was gone. He was aware of it. And Kelvin's heart was starting to soften toward the Genevan people. You'll see the difference here in his writings a little later from the one where he didn't want nothing to do with that town. He didn't want to let to mention it. To I have been unable to refrain from writing to you to assure you of the affection which I ever regard you and my remembrance of you in the Lord. And it is my bounden duty. I hope you see the change occurring in Calvin as he goes through these trials and is maturing. He's starting to sound more like Paul, how Paul was so burdened for the churches and the difficulties that they had for the ones that started under him. But Kelvin was burdened because this Geneva church kept booting out the ministers, the ministers after him and the ministers that followed them. The pulpits weren't being filled. There was a strife, infighting. He later wrote, For he, speaking of God, not only commands to be willing, obedient with fear and trembling to the word, while it is proclaimed to us, but he also commands that ministers of the word to be treated with honor and reverence, for they are dressed in his ambassadors, whom he would acknowledge as his angels and messengers. What Kelvin was saying is, you people in Geneva have to have spiritual leadership if you want the mess cleaned up in your city. 
He cared for them. He was showing love toward them. But he was bold enough to tell them the truth, what they really needed, was to respect God's word, respect God's ministers. He was burdened. He was burdened over the strife of the church, not only in Geneva, but everywhere. Again, he was being noticed as one of the leaders of the Reformation in his writings, in his ability to bring people together like Bucer now. You're starting to see a more gentler Calvin with not such a sharp pen against those we perceived as enemies. They met with the German Lutherans and Worms, or Worms, if you want to pronounce it our way. And Calvin was given the high honor of being seated with the German Duke, Lunenberg, and Johannes Sturm. Sturm was the highest regarded reformer in Germany at that time. And for these men to allow Calvin to be seated at their table with them was a great honor. But it showed that all these reformers wanted that ship going in the right direction, even if they, and they were realizing in themselves that none of them were perfect. But they had a perfect vision for the church. And Calvin was even allowed to give lectures and speak at this conference concerning predestination and other subjects he had written on. The reformers, again, were taking notice of Calvin's many skills in writing and his maturity. And it was they, the church leaders, who asked Calvin to consider returning to Geneva. Remember what he said earlier about returning? Above all, however, on looking back and considering the perplexities that surrounded me the first time I went there, there is nothing I dread more than returning to the charge from which I have been set free. He was glad to get out of the mess there. But also a more mature Calvin and a more Calvin who understood he was under the authority, church authority, under God's authority, and that he had to do what God required of him, not his own desires. Upon hearing or receiving the letter from the Zurich church leaders, he says, I rejoice that you... The church leaders have formed such an opinion of me. He said, you may certainly do so, which meant you can send me back to Geneva, but I will not disappoint your expectations. A submissive Calvin to church leadership, which is submitting to God, and recognizing that the call of God many times is given to us by the will of men, the many counselors. 
That is where we have to have discernment in our lives. So go against what we want to do and step into areas that are foreign to us, places we do not want to go, but others see in the church that it is necessary to go there. God uses other men to direct our lives. Be open to it. Let's be honest, I don't think Calvin was delighted to go back to Geneva. However, he felt it to be his Christian duty to do so. This was a daunting task. The churches were having strife, whether they were Lutherans, Wingling, whatever. Calvin would have to find peace to bring the churches together. He needed to appease the political factions that were going on in the city. The political parties were the ones who would be paying the ministers. That is how united the church and state was back then. They were the ones who would decide if a minister would stay or be exiled. Geneva was a rapidly changing population. Many people coming in from religious persecution fleeing to Geneva. Many pilgrims coming in there, many of them wealthy, causing strife between the businessmen. In reality, this was a pragmatic decision by the church leaders and the political leaders. Geneva was a mess. A couple times it was on the verge of war with the town of Bern, with Basel stuck in between, always trying to be the mediator between them two. More violence among the factions. Physical violence. See, Geneva was like many nations, cities, countries. They were trying to succeed without God. And if you study history, many nations last about 250 years. They get top-heavy. They stray away from God. God blesses them, but then the factions, the infighting, the preference for wealth. When you study history, they get top-heavy and they topple. That was what Geneva was. They did not have the answers because they were not following God's plan. Just like any nation will not succeed if it does not keep God front and foremost. This is God's earth, God's land. The kings will kiss the sun. And that means that nations must form their rules, their laws, 
around God's Word. That is the only way it will succeed. This was a great advantage for Calvin when he returned to Geneva. The church leaders were desperate. The political leaders were desperate for someone to come in. among all this chaos, and save the city. Kelvin had a good legal mind. He saw a great opportunity. But also he understood the word of God. He understood that the state was an extension of the church. That both of them are under God's rule, the governments, church, state, individual, family. They all answer to God. So he negotiated with these political leaders, with them being the enforcers of the penalties for sin, sinful practices. 'Sinful businesses would be punished by the civil magistrate. Now some of us maybe, oh man, we're shuddering, getting all uptight. Calvin is right. The kings of the earth are to kiss the sun. You know, even in our ungodly covenant with tolerance in this nation. We still see the state doing some of God's bidding. Murderers are to be punished. Rapists are to be punished. Thieves are to be punished, unless you're in California and it's less than a thousand. So we can't say that the state has nothing to do with God and his religion. The state. The civil magistrates are servants of God's king, God's kingdom. They are his ministers. And yes, there is a union where the state is to work with the church. The state is the enforcer. The state carries the sword. That means it is the one who can deliver punishment Not so long in our nation history that divorce was forbidden by the state. Homosex, many other sins. For 1,500 years in Western civilization, there was a union between the state and the church to bring forth God's more perfect kingdom here on earth. More perfect kingdom. Not perfect for all sinners. These men were sinners. They didn't get everything right. But they kept the ship going in the right direction, which, was what, which is what we must do. So Kelvin did have this union. Not only with the church, leaders above him, but with the political leaders of the 
Geneva, which he was to take charge of, and they would be the enforcers. They were ready for change. They had run out of, let's say, man's solutions for their problems. Again, John Calvin understood that the state was just another agent of God, another government with different tasks, and he used all the leverage he could. You see, he was good at compromise, but he was an excellent compromiser. His idea was not, I don't compromise with the state. They compromise to the church. The church should never give ground, should never compromise to sin. It is the state and the sinners that compromise to the church. And Calvin took what he could, went as far as he could, without the sharpness of tongue that he broke off relations. But his eschatology was an eschatology of victory. That God's reign will come to the earth, it will advance, and he was part of it, and he would not compromise to them. A little different than today, the church because of the tolerant society we live in, thinks that tolerance must be the way to go. And where has it gotten us? Men in women's locker rooms, drag shows in the churches, and you're called unloving if you disagree with it. Now, I know, as many do know who study history, whenever there is that union between the state and the government, there's a temptation for tyranny. We saw that in the Sanhedrin and the Roman government, tyrannical system. We saw it at Calvin's time with the church, the Roman Catholic Church, and the governors, the government, tyranny. That temptation is there. That temptation will always be there. But we must understand We must understand that the misuse of something, the improper use of something, never negates the proper use, the true use of things. God commands every knee to bow, every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that will be in the religious and the political realm. That is the ideal. That is what the church is building here on earth. 
And because some people do it wrong, some countries do it wrong, it never changes the proper thing, that God will have his way here on earth. And we are part of that church. We are the ones who are to build it. We are the ones in our lifetimes to strive for more and more biblical truths without compromising. Calvin also, through his institutes, demonstrated that he realized, he recognized that the church is not perfect as it is run by men. God is perfect. We in the church here are never perfect. The congregations, like our congregation, like any congregation, you have the wheats and the tares. He said, in this church are mingled many hypocrites who have nothing of Christ but the name and outward appearance. He understood that. But that's what we had to work with. That's what he had to work with. That's what all pastors and church leaders have to work with. But he also understood that is why institutions, laws, and discipline, which prevents the church from falling into contamination and idolatry. That's why you have God's law, the clarity of God's law. That's where we expound on God's law. That's why we have church discipline. It's a strive toward that purification of the church and state to take dominion in the earth. And while in Geneva, Calvin also recognized the necessity of pastoral oversight. He realized that none of them are without air. And every Friday they met, the pastors would meet to try to prevent any air, any overreach against the people in their charge. Now as we go through this, again, this is not a complete study of Calvin and Geneva. I mean, the more I read, the more I was underwater. The deeper it was, the problems, the difficulties. However, I wanted us to understand the imperfections of men who are used by a perfect God to advance his kingdom. None of us are perfect. None of us are right all the time. But God uses all of us. All believers are used. Many parts of the body. We also see that there are difficulties, trials. It doesn't mean that the church is doing it wrong. It means that the church is doing it right. We have difficulties from within, from without, from sin, from the sin in ourselves. It's a constant struggle. It's a constant 
struggle. It's a constant iron on iron sharpening to get a clearer picture of the truth. That will not change. If you are one of God's elect, expect struggles and trials. But also expect that peace that surpasses all understanding, that you know you're doing it for God, that there is a reason and there's a hope for us in the future. He's brought us to church, to be part of a church, so that we get a more perfect understanding of his will here on earth. And he gives us that wisdom, that blessing, that Holy Spirit to advance it. Something we should all be striving for. But not only us, we should be teaching our children to strive for it. The young, to give them a hope and a future. God wins. We already won once we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We've won the greatest thing on earth. But then what? We're called to go out there so others win as well. To advance his kingdom. We must be brought to maturity. That persecution will bring us to maturity. And loving unions with brothers and sisters in the Lord bring us to that more perfect unity and truth. Yeah, trials are a blessing. When you go through them at the time, it sure doesn't feel like it. But it does build that perseverance when you're in the Lord. We get knocked down, we get back up. Calvin was knocked down, but he gets back up. God was working in him to make a better reformed leader, a more stable reformed leader. I'll paraphrase what he wrote to one of his friends. He said, I think it would be easier to have the Pope burned me once than to have these battles day in and day out. So why did he stay there? It was a sense of duty. Reformation was advancing through his work and the work of others. And there is even today controversy of Calvin's work in Geneva. Some love his work, believing that he could do no wrong. Others, if you go online, they call him the Ayatollah of Geneva. I think at times he could have been part of both. They didn't get everything right, but they kept the ship, the Reformation, going in the right direction. And what we do know, God used him greatly in Geneva to bring peace and order to that city. A city that the political leaders and the religious leaders thought something to be impossible. That Geneva was on the edge of war and being destroyed. But what they found after Calvin was there, while widows and orphans were taken care of, Many men who were deacons, who were well-off, well-established, 
quit their jobs and went in the diaconate work full time. The elderly were taken care of. Crime was nearly non-existent. Businesses thrived because of the honesty and the integrity. Refugees continued to flee there. They found a place where they could be welcome, establish their lives in a new place. Kelvin's lectures brought a thousand students a day at times to hear his teachings. A secret missionary group was formed, sending out missionaries to France and the other Catholic-held areas at the risk of their lives. 150 in one year, missionaries sent out. And when Kelvin went to Geneva the first time, it was a population of about 30,000 people. He had 150 missionaries sent out. Many were martyred. Many were caught by the Catholic Church. The widows, the orphans would return to Geneva. They were cared for many times, even in Calvin's own home. They were taught a skill by the deacons so that they could make a living, and then get a house and go on with their life. They were never neglected. Calvin said, if you neglect the poor, you're neglecting God himself. The opponents of Calvin... They nicknamed his church the Church of the Dead because so many missionaries were killed in mocking him. But we saw the change. God used these imperfect men to advance his kingdom. Reformation spread. We're part of it here. Spread throughout the world. When Calvin had Melod, he, he... instructed the missionaries not to do the practices of what Pharaoh and he did when they first came by taking over churches by force or destroying church icons, but that continued with some of these guys. They weren't perfect men. More and more reformers were killed As the leader of France said, kill him on sight, don't even try him. Kelvin had many conflicts going on in Geneva as well. However, through all these trials, he and the others persisted in their callings. Kelvin had physical ailments through most of his ministry. Kidney stones, stomach issues. Many of his writings were dictated to secretaries as he lay in bed because he couldn't get out. He was a mature man toward the end in God. And this is what he said of himself toward the end of his life. But alas, my desires and my zeal, if I may so describe it, have been so cold and flagging 
that I am conscious of imperfections in all that I am and do. This great reformer, imperfections in all that I am and do. You see, when we understand the depths of God's love, the perfection of God, we see the imperfection in ourselves. That's when we are a mature believer. And when we see those imperfections in ourselves, we are highly more likely to tolerate the imperfections in others as well. And God today still uses imperfection men and women to advance his kingdom. Imperfect. Men who err. Women who err. But God uses them when their desire is to keep that ship heading in the right direction. And they may not hit the water perfectly with every stroke of the oar, but in their persistence they advance God's kingdom. Understanding what Calvin said, imperfections in all that I am and do. But that is exactly who God uses to advance his kingdom. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet God uses us. I pray that he uses us as well. Let us pray. My Lord and our God, as we...